inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thank you for listening to my podcast about horse training and equestrian sports. Be sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so that way you won't miss a single episode. If you get a chance, please give this podcast a rating and review. It helps me out a lot, and it helps other horse lovers just like you find this podcast. Since the last time we recorded, I spent almost the entire month of February on the road with back-to-back trips starting in Fort Collins, Colorado, where I was to get a guest teacher at Colorado State University equine program. I was working with the colt starting class up there, which is an absolute blast for me. I was like a kid in the candy shop all week. We had 31 coming two and three-year-olds and all quarter horses, and they were all just at the stage where they were getting their first rides. I believe eight of them had already had one ride on them um, the week before, and the remaining 22 or whatever uh, Colts, we got their first ride on them um, in the round pen, and in most cases outside the round pen too, we still had a few Colts, um, several of which, oddly enough, were related to my Colt Pepperoni. Um, They tend to be a little immature and a little bit full of themselves, very sensitive, very, very sensitive. So they take a little longer to get settled into the riding work. But by the end of the week, we had all 31 Colts um, through their first ride and progressing in their training. So that was really fun to be a part of. After that, I hit the road. We went to Tennessee for an expo. It was great, very well attended. Um, We had a fabulous time in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We were fortunate to get there before the horrible weather hit. Um, I know people in Tennessee are still struggling with recovery from the tornadoes, so um, I was glad we missed that, and I feel, feel badly for all our friends there. Right after that trip to Tennessee, I headed to Pennsylvania for the Horse World Expo in March, also very well attended. Let's see, it was the end of February, beginning of March, very well attended and a great expo, had a good time, worked really hard for four days, came home, and since then, I've been home and it looks like I might be home for a while. The good news is that staying home more allows me to ride my horses more and work on producing some educational content for our online training programs. We spend a lot of energy each week trying to produce useful and relevant educational content for horse owners for our YouTube channel, for social media, and for our um, online uh, training programs. So I'm going to kick it into high gear on the content production during this time of no travel. And uh, right now, our big focus is working on our new online short courses. We're getting ready to release the first one on building confidence with horses. It's a big subject, one we get asked about a lot. So I'm developing a pretty intensive short course that you can enroll in, go through a series of exercises and assignments and reading and videos, and 
come out on the other end with a plan to build your confidence and expand your comfort zone with horses and to excel in your horse life. We're also in the process of creating a video short course on Western Saddle Fit. I'm excited about this one. It's going to be an extensive amount of information on the types of Western saddles, uh, the rigging, how they fit, how to pad a saddle to fit a horse better, um, and when to know when a new saddle is needed. So I'm excited about that content because customers have been asking for it. And mostly I'm excited about it because I think it's going to help a lot of horses. I think we have a lot of horses out there being ridden on a daily basis that could be more comfortable in their saddle fit. And I hope to produce content that will help horse owners address that need. Now that spring is on the horizon, we're riding our horses outside more, which is a great relief to both Pepperoni and me. We were getting pretty sick and tired of going around in circles in an indoor arena and not being able to see outside. So now we have more room. Um, there's more enthusiasm in both of us, more places to ride. And this month in my blog, I talked about riding fresh horses, and I can tell you that was truly inspired by my first few rides outside on Pepperoni. He had a full tank of rocket fuel on board, and we went for a few wild rides out there. So it occurred to me that if I was going through this with my horses, maybe some of you were too. So I wrote my blog about that this month. Be sure to check that out at juliegoodnight.com. Subscribe to my newsletter there and you will receive the blog every month as soon as it's released. Today's topic is riding through the spooks. Also inspired by my first few rides outside this spring on my young horse pepperoni. So we're going to take a look at the behavioral aspects of spooking, or, you know, in the old days we called it shying, and uh, I just I don't know where it, when it became spooking, but spooking or shying, how to train the horse to face what he is afraid of, and most importantly, how to execute the emergency stop when all else fails. You know, you can't completely spook-proof horses. They're flight animals. That's, that's how they are by instinct. But you can successfully teach the horse not to spin and bolt when he's afraid. You, you can teach him to face what he's afraid of. You can also teach that horse to be brave and curious. And that is the opposite of fear and flight. Spooking is a popular topic that riders everywhere are interested in, so sit back and enjoy the ride. Plus, we've got some brand new questions to answer straight from our listeners in the What the Hey Q&A segment at the end of this podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about riding through the spooks. You know, we cannot really de-spook horses. It is the nature of horses that they're flight animals, and it's one of their most defining characteristics. And there's really nothing you could do to completely remove that possibility from a horse. There's really no such thing as bomb-proofing a horse. We can do a lot of desensitizing and we can do a lot of training, but there will still be situations that trigger the flight response. And for each and every horse, the amount of pressure that triggers that flight response is entirely different. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But first, let's just talk about the instinctive behaviors of horses. All behaviors, by the way, are either instinctive, 
or learned. Instinctive behaviors are those that are virtually fully formed at birth. And, you know, this is the nature versus nurture argument. Learned behaviors are everything that comes after birth. And so a horse being a prey animal is very, very strong in his instinctive behaviors. And even after thousands of years of domestication, we've really not been able to successfully breed the flight response out of the horse. And if we could, he might not be the same animal. We might not like him as well. So we utilize the flight response in our training and moving the horse forward and, and everything about his behavior is based on movement. And that all comes with the flight response. There are seven categories of instinctive behaviors of horses, of which one is flight. Flight is the most defining characteristic of the horse, being that he's a prey animal and he's a big, strong, athletic, long-legged animal. So flight is his sort of number one asset. But there's other categories of instinctive behaviors of horses that are just as interesting, and we have, I'm not going to get into what these are, but just so you have an idea, there are instinctive combative behaviors, there are instinctive reproductive behaviors, there are instinctive eliminative and ingestive behaviors, and horses are instinctively gregarious. That's the herd-bound nature of horses. The seventh category of instinctive behaviors of horses, to me, is most important when we're talking about despooking, and that is investigative behavior. One thing we know about horses is once they've determined something's not going to kill them and eat them and flight is not necessary, they almost always become instinctively curious about that thing. And so What's important for you to understand, number one, is that investigative behavior behaviors are instinctive in the horse. Some horses have a much stronger drive in that area than others. Some horses might be stronger in flight, but all horses have those instinctive behaviors. Let's think of it as flight and, and curiosity. And while there's nothing we can do to eliminate flight, there is a lot we can do to encourage investigative behavior or encourage the horse's curiosity and thus in, in, improve his bravery. You know, how much or how little your horse spooks has a lot to do with many other factors beyond um, instinct because learned behaviors come into play significantly. The horse's natural temperament becomes comes into play significantly. You know, some breeds we refer to as flighty breeds. Um, these tend to be hot-blooded horses, uh, thoroughbred being one of them. No kidding. We've bred them for hundreds of generations to do one thing, run fast. So, of course, they're very high in flight. And, you know, a lot. Uh, some of them might be very low in investigative behaviors. Arabians, um, saddlebreds, a lot of the gated breeds, the Passos, a lot of these horses are very um, hot-blooded, meaning they're highly sensitive to environmental stimuli, all stimuli. And so these horses, obviously a very highly, highly sensitive horse is going to be more prone to flight 
than a highly insensitive horse. A horse that's very energetic and forward-moving is going to be more prone to flight than one that's very lazy and and not reluctant to move forward. So we also have situational conditions that that could lend um, to a horse spooking that might not normally spook. Maybe you're riding him out in terrain you've never ridden in. Maybe there he's sensing something dangerous in that terrain here in Colorado in the mountains. We we do have um, you know bull elk will herd up certain times a year, and they can be quite scary if you encounter them on the trail. Horses don't like them. Uh, we also have mountain lions. They can smell the mountain lions if there's one in the area. So there are things that could cause a horse in, in the environment he's in to be picking up on things that are making him a little bit nervous. And so then when a jackrabbit jumps in front of him, he's like, oh, you know, so a, a horse that might not spook um, something else in his environment is making him a little bit more nervous than normal. Maybe not enough that you've noticed it, but it's there. We might be taking that horse out by himself for the first time, uh, even though it's terrain he's familiar with, but he's he's by himself, so he's a scaredy cat. And I call that the dark alley at night theory because it's, imagine that you're walking down a dark alley at night and you hear something behind you, so you start walking a little bit faster, and then you think you hear something else, so you start walking faster. Pretty soon you're running and screaming down the alleyway. That's what happens with horses a lot. They sort of, uh, one little thing is off. Uh, maybe the saddle is a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe, you know, their tummy's hurting them a little bit. Maybe they're in that strange place or with strange horses or by themselves. And then something triggers a spook and and you have a big spook rather than a little one. So all of these factors are going to contribute to to how much or how little a horse spooks. But one thing that's important for you to realize is and one reason why it is important for young and or green horses to be ridden by very competent riders is that Invariably, in a horse's riding career, at some point, sooner or later, you're going to encounter something that really scares the horse suddenly, and the horse horse's flight response is triggered in a big way. If in that moment, which is totally instinctive, the horse wheels around, the rider gets off balance, jerks the horse in the mouth, the horse starts bucking, rider loses balance again, hits the ground, gets hurt, horse runs off, gets lost in the woods, whatever. All of that, every single item on that list was traumatic to that horse. And also he learned from that experience. He learned when something scares him to turn around and run far away until you're safe. And if in that same instance, that horse had been immediately snatched up, turned toward the item, given a moment to settle, and the rider caused the horse to come back into control and relax and then approach that what he is afraid of, that horse would have also learned 
something very significant from that experience. And so we owe it to our horses to make sure that they get the right education in this regard. Learned experience, or yeah, learned experience happens whether we want it to or not. And it happens for better or it happens for worse. And so in the case where a horse has spooked numerous times and each time has been a traumatic experience that the horse uh, you know, succeeded in leaving the scene of the crime, so to speak, um, we have really ingrained that spooking behavior in the horse. So just something to keep in mind for those of you that are working with young horses. You want to make sure that you're prepared. We don't want to channel fear into the horse. We don't want to expect the horse to spook, but we do want to be prepared in case he does. You want to make sure you always have a reasonable rein length when you're in a, in a situation by yourself or outside a controlled arena or wherever you think the horse might be prone to, to spooking. I think it's important that you have reins that are easy to use, easy to shorten and lengthen, easy to take a hold of if you need to in an emergency. My closed-loop rope reins are perfect in this regard. Um, the other day, I was taking my young horse, Pepperoni, outside of the arena, outdoors. Just, just the first or second day, I'd ridden him outdoors for the whole winter. And he was pretty fresh, and he was by himself, which really makes him mad. And we rode down the driveway, and I, I had the reins fairly loose, but I was using my rope reins, so they're just the right length uh, that they don't go so loose that you can't grab a hold of them. And there was the neighbor's dog at the end of the driveway, and I saw the dog, and Pepperoni didn't. He, this is literally the first time this horse has ever spooked with me because he's a very brave and curious horse. He just... You know, I rarely find something that scares him. And and when I have found something that makes him nervous, I play the game with him. I'll tell you about that in a minute. So he's learned to, to click into investigative behavior rather than flight. But in this instance, he was very fresh. We were riding away from the barn by ourselves for the first time. And when he, when that dog moved, he didn't see the dog until we came around the fence, corner of the fence and the dog moved and he wheeled around and leapt into the air. Uh, he did a 180 and just was bolting for home. And fortunately for me, I have a lot of experience with that kind of stuff. I was centered and relaxed in the saddle. So my my seat did not move. I was able to immediately shorten my left rein because there was a solid wooden fence on my left, and I knew I could turn him into that fence and stop him. I shortened that rein. I ripped it up towards my belly button, turned him right into the fence, and got him stopped in one stride. And it left me thinking how badly that could have gone for this horse, who is a hot-blooded horse. He's not prone to spooking. However, he did, and he bolted. If he had gotten away from me, and I'd lost my balance and fallen off, and he ran all the way back to the barn, regardless of what happened to me, 
that would have been a very, very bad precedent to ingrain in that horse. And in such a smart and fast-learning horse like Pepper, I'm afraid it, it would have really been detrimental to his training. And so I think it's important that when we are dealing with spooking horses, we make sure that confident riders are tackling the subject with that horse. Make sure you ride in a reasonable fashion. Make sure you have a reasonable rein length and that you know how to use the emergency stopping rein or the pulley rein. I'm going to tell you about that in a few minutes. And most importantly, you want to make sure that you think through the problem and ride through the problem. Don't freeze up. I see so many riders that in the moment their horse gets scared, they just clinch on the reins and freeze up half the time, digging their heels into the horse at the same time. And it immediately sends the horse into a panic. But if you just ride that horse and cue him in the way he knows and understands, let's turn right, let's turn left, let's let's slow down, let's speed up, let's trot, let's walk. Ride that horse proactively, he comes immediately back to you and is no longer afraid because that seems normal to him. But when the rider freezes up and locks down on the reins, uh, the horse, uh, nine times out of 10, is going to go into a panic. So let me just talk for a minute before I tell you about my training techniques for de-spooking the horse. And that is I want to talk to you about the difference between desensitizing and de-spooking. Um, first, let's agree de-spooking is not really possible. What we're going to do is try to minimize spooking, bring it down to a, almost zero. But you can't really take the flight response out of a horse, nor would you want to. Desensitizing, however, is very easily and quickly done with the horse. You can desensitize them to almost any aversive stimulus in a short amount of time if you do it right. Because horses are highly, highly sensitive flight animals, they are also easily desensitized. And if you think about it, those two things go together. If he were just highly, highly sensitive flight animal and not easily desensitized, he would be in a constant state of flight all the time. And so to balance out that flight response and, and to make sure the horse has calmness, quietness, and recovery in his life, um, he's easily desensitized to aversive stimulus. We do it all the time. Training a horse to be ridden, by the way, is a process of desensitizing him to some stimuli, like the feel of the saddle on his back, the feel of the girth around his chest, the uh, weight of the rider on his back, the feel of the bit in his mouth. Um, all of these things the horse has to be de desensitized to. But then we want to sensitize him to other stimuli, like you know, gentle pulsating leg pressure from two legs means to move or uh, shifting your weight back slightly means to stop. So training is a process of both desensitizing and sensitizing. But when it comes to a horse spooking and his flight response being triggered, that's something different altogether. And so in other words, let's say mm, what spooked my horse out on the trail was a, a plastic grocery bag flying across the by the wind, being blown by the wind. Well, I could take him back to 
the barn and I could desensitize them to plastic bags until I was, you know, waving them all over, walking, you know, dressing them in a, doing whatever I want with a plastic bag, using a desensitizing technique, either um, bombardment or advance and retreat. I'm not a big fan of bombardment. I am a big fan of advance and retreat. I've written a lot about it and talked a lot about it. There's a lot of information on my website about it. But horses are very quickly and easily desensitized to a given stimulus when they know you're going to do it. What triggers the flight response is when something he doesn't know is going to happen happens. And so I could desensitize him to that plastic bag in the barnyard all I want. I could hang him off the trees. I could hang him off the stall, whatever. But that doesn't mean when we're out on a train, strange trail with, by himself in a scary place and a plastic bag suddenly flies by that he isn't going to spook from it. So triggering the flight response is, is something different from desensitizing a horse to, to stimulus. But, but there are some, you know, there's certainly some useful crossover information and there's some crossover training as well. So with, with spooking behavior, we're dealing with the unexpected and the unknown stimuli. My techniques for, quote unquote, de-spooking the horse is to train him what to do when he feels like spooking. And it goes like this. First, I'm going to teach him you have to face what you're afraid of. You cannot turn away. It's not an option. Get over it. Face what you're afraid of and stop. So um, through this training process, I'm going to describe it to you in a minute. I'm going to rule out the horse turning right, turning left, or backing up. By the way, rider skill comes into play here. If you're a beginner rider, you're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be quick enough on the uptake to prevent a scared horse from bolting. And that turning right, turning left, turning right, turning left, nope, you can't back up. Um, that happens really fast. So you have to be able to sit in the middle of that horse, be prepared, shorten and lengthen your rein, and be prepared to take a hold of that horse's nose. Then I'm going to teach that horse, first we're going to rule out right, left, or back, and then we're going to teach him to stop and settle, face what you're afraid of. Do not approach it. At some point, I'm going to cue my horse to take a deep breath. And when he does, I'm going to praise him for his relaxation, pet him on the neck, tell him what, he, what a good horse he is. Anytime he shows forward interest um, towards the area that was causing him fear, I'm going to lavish great praise upon him. The next step in this training process is once my horse has settled and relaxed and is standing there facing what he's afraid of, I'm going to ask him to take just one step forward. Then I'll ask him to stop. And then I will lavish praise upon him for his wonderful obedience. He took one step forward when I asked him to, and he stopped when I asked him to. I'm going to let him settle there, take a deep breath, and just pet on him. Tell him, I got this. You're such a good horse. You're so brave. And I'm so proud of you. I'm going to continue asking for one step forward at a time and then stopping the horse and praising his obedience for quite a while, maybe 
in one situation and one horse, I only had to do that once or twice. In another situation, maybe I did it 12, 15 times before I start seeing a conversion in the horse's behavior from fear to investigative behavior. So depending on where your horse is on the spectrum of flight and investigative behavior, is he high in one or low in the other, vice versa, depending where he is on that spectrum, he may convert to investigative behavior almost immediately, or it may take quite some time, a lot of one step forward, stop, praise, take a deep breath, another step forward, stop, praise, rule out right, left. You might be going through that process uh, for, for five or 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I don't know, depends on how good you are with the release, how good you are with praising, releasing and praising the horse in the right moment, how good you are at ruling out right, left, and back. At some point, the horse is going to show forward interest because he's, he's, his, his fear is lessening. He's getting a lot of praise for obedience, so he's starting to get more confident and every time you, he shows any forward interest, you're going to lavish more praise upon him. So in this moment of conversion from fear to investigative behavior, I call this the don't look in the closet theory. And so imagine if I had, a, let's say, a 13-year-old boy at home. And I was going to run to town uh, to the grocery store, and that whole journey was going to take me, hmm, let's say, a half hour. And as I'm walking out the door, I say to my son, son, I'm going to go to town to the grocery store. I'll be back in about a half hour. But whatever you do, do not look in the closet. And then I walk out the door and leave. What do you think is going to happen before I get halfway down the driveway? My son's curiosity is going to kick in, and he will be investigating why he's not supposed to look in the closet. So at first, when my horse spooks, and we will rule out right, left, right, left, right, left. And uh, by the way, the way that goes is first he tries to turn one way, and you say no. He grab his shorten the rein, grab his nose, you say no. Then he tries to turn the other way, and you say no, and then... That goes on right, left, right, left for a while, depending on how scared he is. And as soon as he determines he can't turn right or left, he's going to start backing up. That's his only other option. And so we rule out uh, the backing up with the with the one one rein stop or the disengagement of the hindquarters. And so uh, once we've ruled out right, left, back, and we've told the horse it, it you have to face it, but you don't you don't have to approach it but you do have to just stand still. <sighs> Cue him to take a deep breath, loosen the reins, pat him on the neck, and he will settle. At this point, you may see some conversion to investigative behavior, and you're going to lavish praise on the horse. But once you feel him starting to move forward, you're going to ask him to move just one step forward and then say, no, but I need you to stop. And when, when you feel this magic conversion occurring, what'll happen is he'll be eager to step forward when you ask him to, to 
and not so eager to stop. That's his investigative draw. That tells you that, oh, now I'm being drawn towards this thing. I got to, it's like an, a magnetic pull. And in this moment, I want to say, no, no, no. Remember, you have to stop when I say stop. Sorry, I know you want to go there and all that in good time. But right now you have to stop. And so that's the don't look in the closet theory. So even as I feel the draw, the magnetic draw, as he's starting to shift from flight into investigative behavior, I'm still going to hold him back a few times to, to, to just help with the don't look in the closet um, to really encourage him. And little by little, we're going to get closer and closer to that thing. And the ultimate prize comes to the horse and he is the winner of the game when he actually reach out, reaches out and touches that thing he's afraid of with his nose. So that's my process of despooking the horse. It's not really despooking him. It's teaching him that flight is not an option. So you may as well get curious about this thing. So before I get too far into this process, um, let me again mention that rider skill is a really important factor here. You have to be very balanced. You have to have good and prompt and meaningful use of all your aids, being able to shorten the reins quickly and take a hold of the horse's nose without pulling on two reins at the same time. You need to keep your hands well forward at all times and be able to manage your reins without looking at them, without dropping them or fumbling them. And most importantly, the rider needs to have the ability and the focus to keep thinking and keep riding when a horse's flight response is triggered. So let's say I've got all of those skills and now I'm going to ride my horse in a situation. Um, well, let's say I want to just train this. I'm not, you know, like all skills, we want to teach this in a controlled and practiced environment for when we need it in a, in a more challenging environment. So, but we, we need to set up a scenario where, you know, what we call a novel situation for a horse. So let's say I'm used to riding the horse in in this certain area, be it an arena or out in the field or on a trail around the barn. But I'm used to riding him in this certain area. Maybe this horse is so scared that you're just going to do this from the ground and he's, you know, just right, set up something in the driveway or whatever. Um, but for a riding horse, it might be, you know, have to set this up. Um, maybe it's something simple like a cone um, with a pole and a streamer on it. Maybe it's a tarp laying on the ground. Maybe it's a grocery bag um, on a tree, something like that. So set up a novel situation that you think could cause your horse to spook. And again, I, you know, I hesitate to even say this because we don't want to teach our horses to spook, but we do want to train them how to play this game, how to convert their fear into investigative behavior. So set something up. And then I'm going to get on that horse and I'm going to make sure I'm riding in a normal fashion. Maybe I'll warm him up a little bit so that he's responding to me. I want to make sure all conditions are right with that horse. And then we're going to head out towards the object that he's afraid of. I want to have him on a relaxed rein with his head down and my hands down as we approach the fearful object. As soon as he sees it and he startles, 
you know, the horse's instinct is to wheel around 180 degrees, either right or left. And so depending on which way his nose starts to move, I'm going to shorten the opposite rein and snatch his nose hard and say, no, you must face this. But at the same time, right after that, I'll, I'll say, but it's okay to stop. And if he immediately tries to turn the other way, I've got to shorten the other rein and bring the nose back. It's imperative that you're not pulling on two reins at this time because you're just going to teach the horse to back up and or rear. So we're going to be using one rein at a time shortening and correcting the nose, correcting the nose the other way, correcting the nose the other way. Most horses that are going to spin and bolt, um, when they realize they cannot turn right or left, are going to immediately start backing. As soon as the horse backs, number one thing to do as the rider is to make sure you're not pulling back on the reins. A lot of horses that are backing up are backing up because the rider's pulling on two reins. So instead, to stop the horse from backing, you're going to use bring one, shorten one rein, bring your hand immediately towards your belly button, and disengage the hindquarters. That will stop the backing. He may go immediately to right, left, right, left again. Um, so however long it takes, you're going to stick with that battle, no right or left, and no backing, until the horse just gives up and stops. At that point, I'm going to loosen the reins. I'm going to pat him on the neck, tell him he's a good boy, That tell him you do not have to approach this thing you are afraid of, but you do have to stop and you do have to face it. Uh, and I want to make that point abundantly clear. I'll cue the horse at this point to take a deep breath and relax by doing so myself. Take a deep breath, make sure all my muscles are relaxed, the reins are loose, pat him on the neck. At some point, he's given up trying to get away. So we've begun to rule out flight. The next thing I'm going to ask him to do is take one step forward. As soon as he takes one step forward, I'm going to immediately sit back, close both hands on the reins and say, whoa, release the reins, pat him on the neck, tell him what a good boy he is. He stepped forward when you asked him to, and he stopped when you asked him to. That's a very, very good horse. Lots of petting on the neck, lots of deep breaths, and repeat. And I'm going to repeat this one step at a time and stopping, really paying attention to my horse's investigative behavior. Is he still trying to get away from this thing, or is he starting to show forward interest? As I start feeling the magnetic draw develop, I'm going to let him go two or three steps towards the thing, but I'm still going to stop him a couple of times to hold him back. So just to encourage that curiosity in him. That's the don't look in the closet theory. At some point, he's going to get all the way up to that thing and reach out and touch it with his muzzle. At that point, I'm going to lavish, lavish copious praise on the horse. Uh, depending on how difficult a journey this has been, I might jump off him and just praise him all over and make a big, big fuss of it. And then I'd probably just go ahead and put him away at that point because... That way he understands the object of the game and he understands he won the game. So the next day I'll set up something different and we'll, or maybe you know, depending on how long it took to accomplish that touching of the thing, I may do the same object again with a horse that was really flighty or set up a new scenario with that horse. You will be surprised 
how quickly the horse learns to convert his fear to investigative behavior because he gets everything he wants when he learns to do that. He gets loose reins. He gets lots of praise. He, you know, he gets to um, feel good about himself and he gets to win the game. And so play this game with your horse, set up the scenarios you can to practice and, and make sure that you pay attention to your horse's mindset throughout this exercise so you understand that moment when fear converts to investigative behavior. Now, one more thing I wanted to share with you about spooking is the emergency stop. This is something all riders should know how to do, particularly people that go out on the trail where you're in an uncontrolled environment. And, you know, there is some situation for any horse that could cause him to spook and bolt. And so, by the way, it's very confidence-inspiring when you know you can stop a runaway horse. And it's a the rein aid we're going to use in the emergency stop is called the pulley rein. Um, by the way, you should know that there is a ton of information on my website, on YouTube, about the pulley rein, the emergency stop. So there's lots of resources for you. But the pulley rein is, first of all, let me just say right off the bat, it is not the one rein stop. The last thing you want to do with a horse that is running away with you is the one rein stop. Why? Because if he's truly running away with you with his neck straight out in front of you and you rip up on one rein, he's probably going to fall down. And that's likely to be a worse scenario than him just running really fast. So the one rein stop is a useful tool for everything up until the horse is actually running away with you. And so then we want the ability to stop the flight response. You're going to execute the emergency stop with two hands on the reins. It doesn't matter whether you use your right hand first or your left hand first. You're going to use the reins one at a time. And so I'm going to refer to your reins as your right hand or your left hand. And if you're in a position right now as you're listening where you can put your hands out in front of you as if you were holding the reins, this might make more sense. If you're listening to this podcast while you're driving, however, I do not want you to do that. So two hands on the steering wheel, uh, but if you're not driving, two hands on the reins. Your hands are well out in front of you, well in front of the saddle. um, And the more challenging the horse or the riding you're doing, the farther forward your hands need to be. And you can either use your right or left hand first. It doesn't matter. So what we're going to do first is shorten the first rein by grabbing the tail of that rein with my second hand, sliding my first hand down the rein towards the horse's mouth until my arm is pretty much straight. So that's going to take me about halfway down the length of the rein. And then I'm going to close my fist on that rein and bring it up and brace it straight over the mane of the neck of the horse. So straight over the midline of the horse's neck with my knuckles pressed into the crest of his neck and my wrist straight and my elbow straight. So I've got a str- what we call a strong arm that's pressing into the neck of the horse, and that rein is really, really short. It's so short, in fact, it would be impossible 
for the horse to turn his nose the other way. Then I've got to shorten my second rein without taking my hand off the rein. Um, so I'm going to move my second hand down towards my first that's braced on the neck of the horse. I'm going to grab the tail of that rein with my thumb, the thumb of my first hand. And that enables me to shorten, slide my hand down the second rein and shorten it. And then the pulley rein comes into play when I pull up and back with the second rein. I do nothing with the first rein except I have my strong arm pressing into the neck of the horse, holding that rein really, really tight. So when I jerk up and back with the second rein, it basically puts my horse's mouth in a vice because he cannot turn his nose because my first rein was so short. And so when I rip up and back with my entire body weight with my second rein, and by the way, that's a motion kind of like, think of an archer's bow. If you were pulling, drawn back on that bowstring, your, um, your first arm would be straight and stiff. That's the stiff arm into the horse's neck. And then my second arm is pulling up and back. So you're not pulling with two reins. Um, you are generating leverage uh, by locking the horse's head in place, basically with the first rein. And when you pull up and back, it should actually be pulling your hand, in, your first hand into the neck of the horse. So you get that, you know, opposite pull on your hands. I'll tell you, you know, this is not an easy thing to learn to do. It's not even easy to learn how to do when there's an instructor right there with you teaching you how to do it. It's not that easy to learn when you're watching a video of it, but it's really not easy to learn by listening to it. But there's lots of information on my website and on YouTube about this. Um, so you'll need to figure out how to execute it. You'll need to practice the execution of it without pulling too much on your horse. Just learn how to manage your reins. So again, starting from the two hands on the rein position, I'm going to grab the tail of my first rein, slide that hand, my first hand down the rein to shorten, brace it against the neck of the horse, slide my second hand down the rein to shorten, pull up and back. And when you learn how to execute this, you can stop any horse on a dime, guaranteed. I know because I've ridden many, many runaway horses. There are a few common mistakes people make in learning the pulling pulley rein. Um, by far the most common mistake people make is when they go to pull back and stop the horse, they pull with both hands instead of one. Remember the archer's bow. Your first arm is your first arm is stiff and pressing into the horse's neck with your knuckles straight up over his the crest of his mane and your wrist and elbows stiff. So don't pull with two reins. The other common mistake that people make in executing the pulley rein is in not having the first rein tight enough. So when they pull on the second rein, the horse's nose turns and it causes a turn in the horse. Remember, we're trying to keep that horse straight. And um, if I, that first rein has to be really tight already with the heavy, heavy, heavy contact on it, so that when I shorten that second rein and pull up a, on it, it generates leverage in the mouth of the horse.
So again, you're going to have to learn how to execute this, practice the motions of it until you can do it without thinking and without looking, and then actually go out and practice it on a horse. I encourage you to do it when the horse is feeling a little strong or fast. So, you know, sometimes we go out in the field when we want to teach people this and we we get the horses up to a fast trot or a canter straight towards the barn. So the horses are kind of wanting to build a little speed. And then we practice stopping the horses abruptly with the pulley rein until you feel like you have enough confidence to execute the pulley rein in a, in a scary situation or a surprising situation. So that's my training technique for teaching a horse that flight is not an option and that curiosity will always be rewarded. Teaching and riding your horse in this manner will go a long way to eliminate your spooking behavior and most importantly, when you do encounter that situation that really does scare your horse, you'll be able to get that horse back to you immediately, convert him immediately into curiosity and bravery, and go on about your ride. Knowing how to ride a spook and how to execute the emergency stop or the pulley rein will give you great confidence in all riding situations. So I encourage you to practice these skills at your own barn, on your own horse. And now, it's time for my favorite segment, What the Hey? Q&A. We pick a few unique questions from our listeners each month and answer them on the air. By the way, I'm also looking for listeners to come on the air with me for a live Q&A session over the phone. So if you have a more complicated question about your horse and you'd like to discuss it with me on the air or if you'd like to submit a written question for What the Hay, please go to my Facebook page at Julie Goodnight Horsemanship or go to juliegoodnight.com podcast and contact us there. And now for our first question. Our first question comes from Kara and she says, I'm thinking about showing in a ranch horse pleasure class. How is this class judged? How is it different from a Western pleasure class? Ranch pleasure is a relatively new class or discipline of riding for the Western horse, the stock horse. And it's developed specifically as an alternative to Western pleasure. In fact, the rules prohibit cross-entering a horse in Western pleasure and ranch pleasure. So the ranch pleasure class or the ranch pleasure horse is judged on distinctly different characteristics than the western pleasure horse is judged on. The In ranch pleasure, it's about the movement of the horse, the ground covering pace. It's about his versatility to perform as a working animal. And it's about his attitude being bright and alert and aware of his environment and, and eager to go to work. So the ranch horse pleasure class is an individual comp competition. So you will ride by yourself an individual pattern. And the pattern is going to be determined by the judge or from the rule book. Um, AQHA has suggested patterns 
that the judge can use or the judge can make up their own pattern. And the pattern has to include the walk, the jog, and the lope, and the extended gates. So extended walk, extended jog, extended lope. Plus, in the individual pattern that you ride, there will be three of five approved maneuvers. So it won't have all of these five maneuvers in. It'll have three of them. One is the side pass. One is the 360-degree turn on the haunches or forehand. Uh, but I think it's usually the haunches. And then uh, lead changes, and they can be simple lead changes or flying lead changes. The And then another maneuver could be um, to either walk, jog, or lope over poles on the ground. And then the fifth category is just any other um, typical ranch maneuver, like opening or closing a gate, um, roping a a dummy or, you know, dragging a log or something like that. So uh, you're going to ride a pattern that consists of the walk, jog, and lope and extended gates. And there will be f at least three maneuvers, such as side pass, turn on the haunches, a lead change, or a lope over, something like that. So another thing that distinguishes ranch pleasure from Western pleasure is the attire and the tack. And again, everything is is very contrasted to Western pleasure. The whole movement of ranch pleasure arose out of uh, people wanting an alternative to Western pleasure. So generally, we're going to use working tack and a working rein length. So silver on the bridle or saddle is discouraged. No hoof polish, no braided manes or banded manes. Um, no tail extensions, none of that um, artificial show ring stuff. You can do minimal trimming on the horse. You can trim the bridle path. You can clean up their, you know, the hair around their jaw. Um, and you can, you can clean up the fetlocks for boots and whatnot, but um, no body clipping and no, certainly don't clip the ears. We wouldn't want that on a ranch horse. So everything's really geared to be all about that working horse. On the judging criteria for ranch pleasure, the, again, the judge is looking for ground covering gates, a forward moving horse with, with attentive, alert expression looking forward. The idea being if you're out on a 10,000 acre ranch and you wanna get from one place to the other, whether you're walking or trotting or loping, you want to cover some ground. And so they want to see the natural carriage in the horse. They want to see a, a no uh, collection and framing up of the horse. They want that horse to have a natural balance. They want that horse to look fairly level in his carriage. In other words, they're not looking for a high-headed horse, but they're not looking for that horse that's in an artificial frame, like you might ride a, a Rainer or you might ride a Western Pleasure horse. So a natural level frame on, um, they don't want a draped rein, but a working length on a, on a light rein, looking for smooth transitions um, for the ability for that horse to extend his gates and then come immediately back down to a slow gait without a change in attitude. And then they want to see the horse uh, perform maneuvers in a workmanlike way. So the ranch pleasure class is really fun. It is not 
as boring and repetitive to a horse as Western pleasure training or rail class training can be. A lot of great skills that you as a rider have to develop. So good luck to you, Kara. I hope you enjoy. Um, I hope you enjoy it and get somewhere with your horse on this. Our second question comes from Laura, and she asks, "How do I keep my horse from bucking into a canter? She does this under saddle, lunging, and at liberty. I've never had a horse that bucked before under saddle, and I'm clueless. I don't get the sense she is really trying to throw me, but it's clearly a habit that needs changed." Well, Laura, it's interesting that you mention that she does this under saddle, lunging, and at liberty, but I'm not entirely clear if she does it without the saddle when you're lunging or at liberty. So in other words, is this horse just one that likes to buck a lot? And is she bucking when she's running around out in the field? Is she bucking a lot when she's not saddled? Or is the bucking only occurring when she's saddling and moving, when she's saddled and moving? So these were some the questions I would ask you if you were um, on the phone live with me. So one thought that occurs to me right off the bat is that this could be what we call a cold-backed horse. Um, cold as in the temperature, and um, so they're cold in the back. And a cold-backed horse is, you know, this is a, a type of horse that for thousands of years we've known about. And this horse typically is a great horse in all other matters. He could be a really well-trained horse. He could be a great horse even for a beginner rider. But when he has not been saddled in a while or ridden in a while or loped in a while, he will tend to crow hop. A cold-backed horse rarely actually kicks out and bucks, but they, you know, the crow hop is the horse rounding his back and going straight up in the air from the middle of his back, all four feet coming off the ground, but he does not kick out with his hind feet. That's a buck. So uh, cold-backed horses typically crow hop a lot. They don't buck much. And generally what you'll see is when they haven't been saddled in a while or the first time you ask them to canter, you might get a little bit of crow hopping, and then it's as if the horse sort of readjusts himself or the saddle and then he's comfortable. So, you know, it's possible that a cold-backed horse is has an underlying chiropractic issue. It's possible there is certainly, it's possible there's an underlying saddle fit issue. But it's also um, not uncommon for horses um, that are a little bit fresh or that haven't had that sensation in a while to crow hop a little bit until they're comfortable. If it's the case and your horse is cold-backed, by the way, you just have to mitigate that. You cinch them very slowly. You walk them in between every tightening of the cinch. You might you know, try to warm them up slowly. Um, you might do a little groundwork before you get on, and then you just, you know, just understand that they might crow hop a little bit. Usually after they're warmed up good, it goes away. Now, it's also quite possible that this bucking under saddle has been inadvertently trained into your horse. So when I'm saddling a young horse for the first time, it is my goal that the horse never bucks. 
I got to get him used to the the surf angle around his girth. I've got to get him used to a pad on his back, the saddle on his back, the rigid saddle tree, the tightening of the girth. I'm going to take each one of those steps slowly. And as I move him around, I'm going to move him around slowly, turning him one way and then the other, specifically so as to never have him buck. Now, even in the best of circumstances, some horses are going to buck a saddle pretty hard. Not many, I would say. Um, up at CSU with our 31 Colts, I would say maybe, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 of those Colts bucked the saddle. The rest of them didn't. So most horses aren't, but some will. And uh, and if I can avoid the bucking, I, I will will by slowing down, breaking it down into smaller pieces of the equation, and not just turning that horse loose, yeehaw, and encouraging him to buck. When you put a horse in a round pen or on a lunge line and go yeehaw every day, you're training that horse to buck in that situation. So I don't know enough about you and your horse to know if you've inadvertently trained this into the horse, but Horses tend to build up into a bucking fit in these situations, and um, what I would do to avoid that is just whether I was on a, a lunge line, a lead line, or in a round pen, or in a big pen at Liberty, anytime I felt the horse was cranking up to start bucking, I'd just turn him around and ask him to go the other way, and turn him around and ask him to go the other way, and turn around and ask him to go the other way. You need to get the bucking out of this horse's habitual behavior. And you can never do that by asking the horse to buck it out. So um, sometimes uh, people that say, um, I've got to lunge my horse to get the bucks out. Sometimes they have fallen victim to this particular conundrum with a horse where you think your horse needs to buck. So you put him out on the lunge line and ask him to buck. From his point of view, he thinks you're not going to quit lunging him until he bucks. He thinks what he's supposed to do is go out there every day and take off on the lunge line. So that's habitual behavior that's been trained into the horse. So we look, you know, we look at replacement training, replacing one behavior with another. Um, one thing that's often easy to do is change directions. So every time the horse starts to buck, he changes directions. And pretty soon, every time he thinks about bucking, he just turns around and goes the other way. So that's called replacement training and, and could be an effective technique for your horse. Definitely, we'd like to, uh, we don't like our saddle horses to buck under any circumstances. So it's something we got to be very careful not to train into that horse. So I hope that helps. Um, we have to figure out where this is coming from first before you develop a plan to fix it. So good luck to you. Thank you, everyone, for a fun and interesting conversation about training your horse to manage his own fear. I hope you found some good tips for you and your horse. Don't forget to check out my online membership programs. You'll find the help you need when you need it. You can subscribe to my full training library or enroll in a horsemanship short course or join my premier level, the Interactive Academy, where you receive assignments and personalized coaching from me. Just go to signin.juliegoodnight.com. Next month, we'll tackle another horse training subject to help you find the solutions you need to help make your horse life better. I'll talk about horses that have learned to rip and run, 
This is a very dangerous habit, and it can be quite difficult to resolve. These are the horses that rip their nose out of the halter and run off when you turn them loose, or worse, they rip the rope out of your hands and run off when you're leading them if it's something they don't want to do or someplace they don't want to go. I call those horses that rip and run, and it's a tough, tough training situation, and I'm going to talk to you about that in our next podcast. I'm sure you'll enjoy next month's podcast, and I know you'll find some useful information there. Be sure to hit subscribe now so you won't miss a single episode. I enjoy sharing my horse care and training experience with you, and I appreciate all your feedback and suggestions. I love to hear what topics interest you the most. If you have questions, podcast topics you'd like me to address, or if you'd like to participate in a call-in podcast with me, please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email me at podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Thanks again for your awesome comments and for the five-star ratings you've given me. It helps me out a lot and it helps us rise in the rankings so more horse lovers just like you and me can find this podcast. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thank you for listening and don't forget to enjoy the ride. sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride. Mm-hmm.